Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, after a horrific crash over the weekend, once again, Canadians are debating the significance of the snowbirds. The Ontario government has decided no school until September in person. Online, of course, continues till June. The World Health Organization agrees to let it be investigated in regard to its handling of COVID-19 and China's participation in that decision. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Tragic news uh, over the weekend, uh, you know, and we were, I'm sure you were all uh, running outside and, and looking up over the last few days when the snowbirds did their uh, flyover uh, from east to west uh, last week and, and uh, were on the, uh, in British Columbia over the weekend. And uh, tragically, as we all know, a crash, one pilot killed, another injured uh, and uh, ejecting right at the last minute before this, uh, before the plane went down. And we've all seen the video and such. Let's play a clip from uh, the prime minister earlier this morning uh, during his press conference and talking about uh, the snowbirds and another uh, tragic loss. My thoughts and the thoughts of all Canadians are with the families of Captain Casey, Captain McDougall, and the entire Snowbirds team. This has been a very difficult few weeks for members of the Canadian Armed Forces. As we mourn, we remember Captain Casey as a proud Nova Scotian and an outstanding servicewoman. A journalist who her, turned her talents to the forces, she will be remembered not just for her professionalism, but for her sense of humor and for her kindness. As we honor her, we pay tribute to the bravery of all those who serve today. All right, uh, that's the Prime Minister speaking earlier this morning about the uh, tragic loss of uh, Captain Jen Casey. Uh, We're going to bring in reporter Paul Johnson from Global News. uh, And uh, Paul Johnson knew Captain Jen Casey, who passed away. Paul, thank you for taking the time to join us. Our condolences uh, out there to everybody who, who knew Captain. Hey, uh, thanks uh, for that. And, you know, that's a lot of people in the in the news media. I mean, not just myself, anybody who did any reporting on the Snowbirds over the past couple of years when Captain Casey was in charge of the public affairs, you know, would have dealt with her and, and, and would have known her and, uh, and worked with her. Um, we were working on a documentary for uh, Global News, um, and uh, so I had, you know, spent more time working with her over the past year and setting that up. And at one point in January, we traveled out to uh, CFB Moose Jaw in mm-hmm. uh, Saskatchewan, where the Snowbirds are based, and uh, spent a few days with them and interviewed all the pilots, and including Jennifer Casey. So, uh, so yeah, it's a real sad uh, story about a, a team that I, of exceptional people who um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to know a bit. Paul, talk, is, talk to us a little bit about what, what's that like, what this group is like, what's it like to hang with these people, uh, and specifically, what, what stood out about uh, Jennifer Casey to you in your mind? Well, you know, the Snowbirds in, in general, um, like any military jet pilots in any military, um, I mean, it's, uh, it, you might say it's cliche, but it's true. I mean, they're the best of the best. Um, you know, I mean, first, it's really hard to, you know, become a military pilot in Canada. You've got to be good and diligent and skilled and have all of the uh, 
requisite hands and feet skills and, and commitment to, to do that, then within the military to get to the place where you join the snowbirds, um, you know, you have to try out for it. And uh, I would imagine most people who try out don't make it. Um, they're looking for only a select few who can pull off their mission. And, um, and the mission is hard and dangerous. And if you've ever seen a snowbird's performance uh, at an air show, um, they do a lot of gripping, uh, thrilling, but uh, dangerous things. And uh, they push those planes, you know, right to the, to the very edge. And uh, that's how they're able to do the show that they do. Most of the time, they do it safely. And, um, you know, we have seen some uh, tragedies over the years with the snowbirds. There have been a handful of them. But if you look at the larger picture, um, you know, they're, you know, outside of the air shows, they're doing thousands and thousands of flights every year that are pulled off without incident. So they're very good at what they do. Now, about Captain Casey, she was interesting. She was like you and I. She had a background in broadcasting, and she had been a radio reporter. She worked in Halifax, and she worked in Belleville, Ontario. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting. She did that first and then decided to join the forces. And obviously she was very good at what she did because she got to be the public affairs officer for the Snowbirds. Um, that's uh, certainly a, a coveted job. And she was very capable at doing that. So um, she was an exceptional person who really had the spirit of adventure. You know, not only was part of her job to fly around in the jets from town to town so that uh, she could tell the story of the snowbirds, there would be another pilot flying and she would be riding along. But during all of the rides, she got the aviation bug. And, you know, when I was talking to her in Saskatchewan, she told me that she was in the process of learning how to get her wings privately and wow. to become a private pilot. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know what stage she was at that, but that was a dream of hers. So this is somebody with the spirit of adventure, right? Wow. Uh, any more information on the crash itself? What's the latest? What do we know? Well, there's still a massive investigation happening here in Kamloops. Um, it's encompassing two sites, um, the house where the empty jet crashed, and about five properties over the house where the, the two air crew came down to the ground, um, and their ejection seats and their, their parachutes are there. Um, we still don't know, and we'll have to wait. Uh, for the military to advise us about, you know, their preliminary findings. Um, they're, they're pretty thorough about that. You don't get a lot of links or leaks or, or heads up ahead of time. But clearly from the video, you can see the plane lost power. And uh, then this, and they were too low to be able to turn around and land, so they made the decision to eject. And uh, for whatever reason, um, the ejection and then the parachute to earth um, was not something that Jennifer Casey was able to survive. So I am presuming here the investigation is two-pronged. One, what happened to the engine and why did the plane lose power? Two, uh, was there something faulty in the way the ejection seat and the parachute apparatus worked when it deployed? And uh, we sort of reading between the lines here and knowing how the military works, um, I think it's safe to bet within a matter of weeks we might get some kind of preliminary conclusion that uh, may clear these snowbirds jets that are grounded here in Kamloops to fly back to Moose Jaw if they deem that safe. And then the final investigation report, I mean, that might take a year. And that's frequently how these time frames work. 
We saw, uh, and we've all seen that that now uh, infamous footage of of what happened here. Uh, there was two planes that were taking off. This was they were traveling to another destination. They weren't part of a process or a procedure at this point, were they? Yeah, they were. This is you know really the cruel irony of this. They were just taken off to fly to another city. This was a yeah. transit flight. They weren't doing dangerous acrobatics or anything like that. They just took off. And uh, something happened when that plane took off, the one that Casey and Rich McDougall were in. Um, you know, some speculation from, you know, pilots we've interviewed, and this is just their speculation from looking at the video, is, you know, was there a bird strike? Did a bird go into the engine? And yeah, we heard, heard, we have heard rumor of that. Any, any uh, has that been uh, proven at all? Do we know anything about that? Yeah, no, that's just all speculation. The military hasn't said anything about what they think their probable cause is so far. So, and you know, they're pretty tight-lipped about that, and they wait till that's vetted and approved before they release that kind of stuff. Uh, what about the future of the Snowbirds? It seems whenever we hear about this, uh, they question the age of the jets. I guess these are from about 1964 era. Uh, and whether this is all worth it or not. Obviously, this is a huge uh, promotional tool for them, and it, it, it aids them greatly in recruiting and such. What about the future of this team and the actual jet itself? Yeah, those are all valid questions. Um, the plan with respect to the Canada Air Tutor, which is the jet that they've been using, which I should add has been a excellent jet, for the Canadian forces. First, it's a Canadian-designed and Canadian-built jet. Uh, we don't even have the capacity in Canada right now to make that jet anymore. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a unique jet that means a lot to Canada, and it turned out to be an excellent jet for air shows. Uh, it's not as powerful as the F-16s or the F-18s that the big American military teams use. And what that means is that they're able to keep the air show in front of the audience more because the planes don't have to fly as far to turn around because they don't they don't go mm -hmm. as fast but they still go plenty fast and they can do all kinds of cool things so the Canada Air Tudor has really been an exceptional jet for the Snowbirds and it's a Canadian jet now their plans were to keep it going for about another 10 years. Um, I've been in the hangars there in Moose Jaw. Um, I've seen the work that they do. I've been in the engine room. And, I mean, you know, these jets are old. I mean, this was going to be their 50th year flying those jets. But those jets are maintained at the absolute highest standards for yeah. aviation anywhere in the world. Uh, they've got a strict program of, of stripping them down uh, for every set amount of hours flown. Um, they even have sensors in the fuselage of the airplanes to measure how much they might be uh, flexing or bending when they do maneuvers. I mean, they're really on top of this kind of stuff. So mm. when they say that they weren't concerned that the age of the jets was a problem, right. um, I think you have to you know, take them at their word for that. And, you know, by comparison, we just had another tragedy that happened uh, with Canadian forces, and it was in the Mediterranean, and that was a brand-new cyclone yeah. helicopter that went yeah. down. Yeah. So... Um, you know, I, I don't know that the age is going to be the determining factor, although they might find something wrong with the engine. And um, down the road, they are going to have to find a replacement uh, for the Canada Air Tutor, and um, I think they don't know what that is yet. Um, we've seen how long it's taken to replace the CF-18s in Canada, so um, you can imagine there's going to mm -hmm. be a lot of work to do on that.
Paul Johnson has been with us, a reporter for Global News. Paul, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated, and uh, be well during this time of COVID-19. Yeah, you too, man. Take care. Paul Johnson with us, uh, Global News reporter from British Columbia. Uh, of course, the tragic loss of uh, Captain Jen Casey, who uh, did not survive the ejection of that snowbird. Uh, Rich McDougal, the captain, uh, uh, Captain Rich McDougal did uh, in that plane. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here, here's great news. Now, we're, yeah, and I'm sure lots are concerned, and, uh, and Dr. Khalid will probably echo this, that as we hit the stage one and people slowly start to uh, come out of their uh, bunker, uh, two weeks from now, will we start to see a, a bit of an uptick in this as we release and, and loosen up these uh, restrictions uh, a bit? The good news, more than 50% of Canadians, the Canadian cases, have recovered from the pandemic. To talk about all of this, Dr. Ahmad Khalid is with us, faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Nice to speak to you. So uh, I want to start, uh, Ahmad, by uh, playing you a clip of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and him speaking in regard to the news that Donald Trump had uh, taken this new experimental drug. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say. I will continue to follow advice of medical professionals and uh, implore uh, every Canadian to follow the best advice of our medical health experts. All right, uh, doctor, what are your thoughts on, uh, first of all, can you pronounce this drug correctly for us so we all know what it is, and, and <laughs> then your thoughts? Yeah. Say it one more time, sorry? Hydroxy, hydroxychloroquine. Okay. Hydroxychloroquine, uh, to break it up apart. The, the, what, what the Prime Minister here is talking about is Donald Trump has made a statement that he's been taking hydroxychloroquine for the past couple of weeks as a precaution for COVID-19. That is extremely dangerous and against all medical advice. The scientific evidence is telling us that people who take, who have taken hydroxychloroquine, have seen a irregular heartbeat. So it has an effect on the heart. Uh, we are also not clear about the dosage of hydroxychloroquine. How much should we be giving those patients? And more importantly, hydroxychloroquine is really primarily used for malaria and has not proven yet to have any effect on COVID-19. And if in some clinical trials where we're trying to see if it does have an effect, that has to be under the medical supervision of a doctor or a healthcare provider. Um, and so the message here is loud and clear. Please do not use hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and we're not quite sure why Donald Trump has decided to take that route. How did we get here? As you said, this is a drug that's commonly used to treat malaria. How did this even enter the discussion? There were some studies earlier on that where people were, some physicians in some countries, including the U.S., were using hydroxychloroquine in uh, severely ill patients in the hospital. So they were desperate. They didn't know what to use. Some of them were actually my colleagues in the U.S., infectious disease doctors that just weren't sure what they can use at this point because we were very early on in the pandemic, uh, severely ill patients in the intensive care unit. There were some reports that hydroxychloroquine has some benefits. So we were some physicians were trying it under very direct supervision of the full entire healthcare team, uh, and the results have come out so far not the greatest. We don't have conclusive evidence that it works, and therefore the message is so far no, we are not using it for the mass public, and it's not a treatment for COVID nineteen. So was there some sort of positive information that made people want to pursue this avenue? 
Yes, and so the the hydroxychloroquine plays with the RNA of the viruses, and so that's where COVID nineteen usually is the genetic composition of it. And so there were some theories that it might actually alter the transmission and the progression of the disease based on its way, its effect on the RNA of. And you, the way you want to think about the RNA, it's like the inside mechanisms that operate the virus. So it would be like the engine of the car, and the car being COVID nineteen. So. There were some theories around that. Unfortunately, we don't have any good news about its actual long-term benefit. And on the contrary, what we're seeing is that it actually has an effect on heart rates. And so we're really, really careful about the messaging on people using it. You were saying that, uh, you know, this was being used experimentally on patients who were in very extreme, dire situations. And I can understand that, especially where we are, considering where we are, rather, with COVID-19. But what about using this as a preventative uh, measure? Uh, have you heard it being used in that scenario? The, the president was talking about that other frontline workers have been taking this. Uh, I'm not sure where he's getting that report about frontline workers taking this, because I have a lot of friends and colleagues that are in the front line, and I have I'd never heard of that report before. Uh, we do know that some parts of Africa, some countries in Africa, have been experimenting with the medication. Again, malaria is very rampant there, and so their use of hydroxychloroquine is more uh, common. Uh, however, in, in our context, in the Canadian context, there are no reports of our frontline workers using hydroxychloroquine. I think the president of the U.S. was trying to use that as a way to support his own theory, and we saw that his own medical doctor has actually had to make a statement to clarify what is going on and saying and urging the public that he's advised Donald Trump of the benefits and the harm of using the medication. And it was a decision of the president to actually go forward with using it. So it was a personal choice rather than based on evidence. You make up a very valid point, too, here, Ahmad, though. How do his doctors justify doing this, um, considering where it is? But also, it's the president of the United States. He's not a guinea pig. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's been the biggest difficulty in terms of a political science framework looking at this, is that how do you let the medical professional who is in charge of taking care of the health of the president, uh, arguably the most powerful man in the world, against the medical advice? And I think at the end of the day, that's why his statement was very telling, that he advised the president of all the benefits and the harms, just how we explain it right now, and that the president has made the choice to go move forward with this as a personal choice rather than based on the best available medical evidence. And we've seen that over and over again, Scott, with uh, President Donald Trump and the advice going against the advice of his public health professionals and his medical care professionals. Uh, It's one thing, doctor, to have him decide to take that, and I guess that's his own personal prerogative. But what about releasing that information and telling the, the, the media that? How are people to interpret this? Well, uh, what we've been looking at is here is that the case that that Donald Trump has decided to make this bold statement that he's taking hydroxychloroquine on a daily basis based as a reaction to what's been going on internally at the White House and and his own uh, firing of agents who've been uh, saying that there has been whistleblowers at the White House, that uh, there was a push for people to use hydroxychloroquine. And the messaging out of the White House is that to actually increase the use of hydroxychloroquine. I think this is why the medical professionals uh, and the medical teams across the world have been very strong and clear about their statements, including the World Health Organization and our own Canada Public Health Agency and our Prime Minister of saying that there is no evidence to support this because I think this is the danger of putting out a statement saying that you can use a drug that is, by the way, exceptionally powerful uh, to put out as a preventative measure for the general public. The last thing we want to see is 
people trying to take hydroxychloroquine on their own at home? Uh, the president, and then we'll get off this and move on to something more credible, but um, uh, he also said something about zinc, a zinc supplement, and I've heard that being floated around. What, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So that we've also heard about the zinc supplements, and, and there are some studies that are seeing some positive effects of that. But again, I think that it's too early for that. And, and as a preventative measures, I think right now the best preventative measures for people is public health intervention. This is a pandemic, a virus that we know transmits easily from one person to another. So if you're looking for a way to protect yourself from this, my advice would be continue to practice this, uh, hand hygiene, safe hand hygiene, continue using hand sanitizers and, and washing your hands and, and try to stay away from large crowds. That is, as scientifically based, uh, the best way for you to prevent yourself from getting, getting COVID-19. Okay, so here we are, doctor, uh, entering week number 10 since uh, March break. That's the only reference I can make at this point is it all seems to meld into one. Um, We're seeing stage one officially start in Ontario. I guess there's a gradually reopening over the weekend. And now we're seeing um, uh, retailers with separate entrances who can provide safe social distancing uh, begin to open. How concerned are you as we hit stage one today? And do we, how closely do we have to monitor the next two weeks? Will, can we expect a ripple here? I think that we have to closely monitor the number of cases. Specifically, we need to be looking at can our health system uh, respond to a, a spike in the number of cases. We are going to see an increase in the cases. That's just normal. Uh, you know, we've been all locked up in our houses. Now we're exposed out to the public. Uh, this would, what, what will eternally, what eventually that will do is that it will create uh, increase in the number of cases as we transmit it to each other. Uh, but that to say is that I think it's a smart uh, process in terms of slowly opening up things uh, just to, as we as we move forward. Because the reality is we're going to continue living in this COVID-19 environment until a vaccine is, is out there in the market for everybody and herd immunity is developed. So in the meantime, we really must be looking at a way to adopt this new reality. And one way of doing so is opening up things slowly and gradually over time. Okay, here's another uh, last question, Ahmad, that you probably can't answer, and it's just some good advice and common sense. I'm sure that'll come from you on this. But, you know, the kids are asking, when can we get together? It's stage one. When do we slowly let people get together? We are slowly seeing a restriction, a, a relaxing on that restriction. And by that, I mean that we're allowing more and more people to see each other. I, I think if the, the, the good advice here is that if you're in a public space, so outside air, fresh air, you can sort of get together with close people, but I will caution, please, to keep it from five to ten people at most. The last thing we want to see is massive crowds getting together in public. That is really against the advice of everybody right now. It's, it's slow and progressive, and, and progressive uh, move towards allowing social gatherings to happen over time. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in Human and Social Sciences, Health Policy Advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So the big news today was uh, the schools will, in fact, stay closed until uh, the end of uh, the end of the school year, starting again back in September. The safety of our children is my top priority. And one thing I will never do is take unnecessary risk when it comes to our children. And that's why after careful consideration, after consulting with the health experts, it is clear that we cannot 
open schools at this time. I'm just not going to risk it. Uh, the premier speaking moments ago, while this was going on, uh, I don't know where the kids are. They're, they've left my door. Um, so I, I sent a text to both my kids, uh, no school until September. Uh, Curtis immediately sent me a text back, and I cannot repeat what he said. And I will, I will, I will talk to him later about this. <laughs> and meanwhile, my daughter says, bless Jesus. <laughs> She's... She's very, very happy. She's she's fine the way it is. Let's bring in Annie Kidder, People for Education. She is with us now. Annie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated as always. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. And your thoughts on what was announced uh, from the education minister today, that schools will, in fact, uh, remain closed until June? Well, uh, not surprised. It seemed kind of inevitable. It's, you know, it, overall, it's sort of ghastly that we're in the world we're in, but it seems, uh, you know, it seems to me, and I'm sure all the health people, to be the right decision. Um, and now they are, you know, starting to think about then what does that mean and what happens next and how are we going to continue to support all of the families who are, you know, some of them struggling to, to maintain uh, some form of learning at home and to maintain, you know, not killing your children, to put up a fine point yeah. on it. You know? yep. <laughs> Some kind of happiness at home. Um, but, you know, I think it was inevitable. I think it's it's not surprising at all that it did, did seem like it was going to be impossible to reopen schools before the end of the school year. So I guess the big question now is, Annie, what's this going to look like come September? Yeah, that is the big question. And I think that, you know, I guess from our perspective as an organization that does a lot of research, what we're hoping is that we're not thinking about sort of back to normal or back to anything. We're thinking about how do we combine all of the complex work that's going to have to be done because they did in the press conference. They seem to really be saying we're still going to be looking at physical distancing in September. We're still going to be uh, dealing with a lot of kind of health protocols. So we definitely have to figure out that, the kind of mechanics. Uh, but we also really have to think about whether or not, amazingly, this is a kind of opportunity to rethink some of school and hopefully not go kind of back to basics or how can we get just the, the, the bare, bare, bare bones there, but really look at how can we make sure that we're thinking about all of the other kinds of skills that kids need in order to thrive. And some of those are really coming out right now where, um, you know, how do we make sure that kids are resilient and that they're able to understand all of their feelings around what's been going on, um, able to understand their responsibilities even when we're thinking about, you know, how they stay healthy. Uh, but school is going to have to look different again, not just physically, but from a kind of teaching and learning perspective. You know, you brought up an interesting point here, Annie, too, about the mental anguish with kids. You know, I just sent my two kids who are upstairs a note, a text, because I'm in my little room here, uh, telling them the situation. One was very positive, one was very negative. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about that mental anguish. I mean, uh, I have one that's very upset. He wants to see the buddies, he wants to see the yeah. friends in, in school. This is tougher for the kids than we think it is, isn't it? I absolutely. And I think it's tougher on a number of different levels. I mean, I'll show my age here by saying when I was nine, we went through the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was yeah. a huge crisis where, you know, there was a possibility of a nuclear war. And I was nine years old, so nobody talked to me about it. But I remember being incredibly worried and secretly reading the newspaper and not understanding and being worried my family was going to die. I don't think that's happening right now. But 
I think that there's two different things then that kids may be really worried. And we do have to keep talking to them about this so that they know it's okay to have my, my, my 27 year old uh, says that she feels we're all in a state of kind of cosmic anxiety um, mm. that we're recognizing that with kids too, but also that they do miss their friends. And, you know, the biggest thing that's coming out of this is schools are really important and they're important for social lives. That's part of learning. They're important for face-to-face relationships with teachers and all the other people in school that school is you know our kids kind of communities that they go to every single day and so this is this is really big and we can't pretend that it isn't big in terms of their in terms of their mental health and in terms of you know how we're going to be talking about it thinking about it when they are back in some kind of you know physical space together you know we have to and we it can't just be you know for one day, we're going to recognize this and then go, quote unquote, back to normal, that this is this, this changes things. And hopefully it makes us remember that all these other kind of social emotional skills are incredibly important, pandemic or no pandemic. And again, as you mentioned, this has the impact of a depression, recession, world mm-hmm. war, all of that yeah. stuff. And, uh, you know, I read something interesting over the weekend. Um, uh, many, uh, this person was comparing uh, this more to the uh, post-World War II than post uh, the Great Depression and basically said, let's remember that out of that came the so-called greatest generation who rebuilt the world after uh, World War II and the opportunity that was there. And this person positioned it's the same thing now for this next generation because things will be so different for those kids that are now 10, 15, 20 years of age. Once they get going, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch to see how this generation responds. I think that's a great point, and but it's, and it's a very optimistic one, so that's good. But so I, but that is taking this as an opportunity rather than how can we get through this as quickly as possible and go back yeah. to the way it was. That it is, there are really big possibilities now. What you know, this has reminded us all that schools are amazing places where a lot of stuff happens. It's reminded us about the inequities that always existed that were kind of masked by school. And there's a possibility. And it's also even, um, it, uh, hopefully, it's helped us learn what kind of online learning works and works really well and does engage students and what kind of online learning doesn't work at all. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I hope that over the summer, everybody's, you know, there are task forces and people are thinking about what does this mean and how can we transform schools in different ways and work more collaboratively. So there's definitely a possibility for hope but we have to kind of take that on and it'll be interesting come september if they we end up and you know where some kids go on one day some kids go on the other day they alternate yeah or if we end up with with classes with a you know a course that has is partly online and partly uh, in person and where or where teachers are collaborating together to teach different groups of students the same subject so that there there are again there's there's possibilities for kind of exciting experimentation um, and it may I mean that's what they, you know they definitely were talking about today that it's it's definitely not going to be business as usual even come September and it, you know we can look at what they're doing in BC 
uh, next month, which is which is kids are going to school, you know, for part of a day or on different days or one day a week or um, and and that is really, really hard for sure. But also, does it open up a whole new perspective on how how teaching and learning can happen? That's mm. the, that's the thing I hope that people are thinking about. Annie Kidder has been with us, People for Education, talking about uh, the school year now, uh, the rest of June, till the end of June, it's canceled. They're not back in school till September, and what's that going to look like? Annie, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much thank appreciated. You. Okay. That's Annie Kidder, uh, People for Education. Uh, phone lines are open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell, as they always are. Daryl's on the line. Daryl, what are your thoughts as we wade through all this? Oh, I was just wondering if how we're going to get kids into summer camps because I, uh, my daughter was enrolled in a, a fairly large one, and they've already canceled it and refunded my money. Hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, and again, this is what happens when, you know, literally you're, you're learning on the fly. The situation changes weekly. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we could say right now we're talking about September and what schools are going to look like, that it will need to look like this, and it may be an entirely different situation by by September. I see your point that what the, the uh, government was making reference to today, the premier, uh, I guess overnight camps gone. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. Uh, hoping for day camps through uh, July and August. But yeah, I guess this will make each individual uh, uh, situation, each individual municipality, perhaps look at them again and and see how they're going to start or if they can do uh, abbreviated versions of such. But yeah, you're, you're right, Daryl. It's going to be interesting to see uh, if that camp uh, tries to recontact you again and say, oh, you know, we're back on, we're back off. Uh, but again, this is what happens when the situation literally develops day by day. And then it's going to be like it's going to be a mad rush if any of them that are say, oh, we are going to be open. How many people are going to be trying to get into it? It's going to be like crazy and and kids aren't going to get in. And then then parents are going to have to stay home because they have to look after their kids. It's certainly not. It certainly isn't situation normal. That's uh, that's for sure, Daryl. And and again, it's just it's one of those evolving situations. And, yep. and I'm afraid yep. you just you're not you're really not going to know anything till the last minute, right? I mean, it's the same thing as the long weekend. People weren't sure, you know, if they were going to get to go to places, whether uh, boat launches or whatever would open up, or the parks, and then slowly they start too. And and you know, I guess as the leaders have said, as we start to see the numbers continually go down, that's good news. But if they start to peak up again you may you may see them restrict things a bit more so it really is learning on the fly daryl and i think you're going to be like that for the next six months right on cool have a good day you too be well daryl uh again 905-645-3221 star nine nine hundred on your cell lots of concerns uh news coming up at two o'clock we'll regroup and go down the other side as we uh enter the last hour of the scott thompson home show you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. With the pandemic ongoing, uh, lots of chatter, especially as we go down the backside of the curve. Uh, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Uh, and and now we're hearing that uh, that many have asked for uh, an investigation and and into what the World Health Organization has been up to during this pandemic. 
most of the member countries agreeing with that. And then uh, obviously today the World Health Organization uh, saying it would welcome uh, such an investigation. Where does this leave everybody? Where we are? Uh, where are we now? How do we move forward with this and especially our relationship with China? Let's bring in Charles Burton, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, and has worked with many diplomats uh, in China and Canada. Uh, thank you for taking the time, Charles. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Good to speak with you, Scott. So we have seen how China has slowly in the last 20 years or so interwoven itself uh, into the world economy. Many have said that now China is the world's workshop. They make everything there. Uh, and we've certainly seen uh, with Canada uh, how China has interwoven itself into our economy, even into our educational institutions, our healthcare systems and such. Uh, how, when... Uh, did they start to influence the World Health Organization, or is that even an accurate statement to say at this point? Well, it's very hard for us to know uh, the extent of China's influence over the World Health Organization. You know, we don't know if officials in the World Health Organization have been recipients of benefits from the Chinese state of various types, or that the governments that sponsor those officials have benefited. Uh, there seem to be some very strong indications that uh, that that is in fact the case that China has, um, as it has done in many UN organizations, perverted the neutrality of those institutions to try and favor China's interests. So, you know, that's something that, that we really want to look into closely as to whether the WHO um, knowingly transmitted false data out of China and did not uh, do this kind of due diligence that they should have done on the information they're receiving from China, particularly as we know with the SARS um, those years ago, that China had uh, initially distorted and uh, covered up um, some of the data on that disease, which then led to the spread worldwide. But, you know, that was some time ago, and SARS didn't have the kind of devastating impact that this disease has had. And therefore, I think it's incumbent on us, as you say, to try and figure out what happened and to take effective steps to make sure this doesn't happen again. Why are we even questioning whether this happened or not? Well, I mean, you know, Chinese government denies it. The WHO denies it. Uh, 120 countries want to have an investigation. Um, the meeting of the World Health Assembly, um, which is the body for governing the WHO, has indicated that. Um, China says, well, you know, we'll, we, we support an investigation after the pandemic is complete and it should be carried out by the WHO itself and should look at um, all of the nations of the world in one, in one investigation. I think what most countries, particularly Canada, Australia, and United States, would like to see is an independent investigation where we can get the facts and, you know, not have the have the, the, the same people who are accused of malfeasance investigating whether they did any malfeasance, that kind of thing, which is how the Chinese would prefer. How could and or, or did China influence the World Health Organization? What is in this for the World Health Organization? Why get caught up in this? Well, I think it's like a lot of Chinese uh, influence operations around the world that if you continue to play uh, nice with China, that you will continue to derive uh, benefits, you know, board memberships, uh, Chinese funding of various types. You know, we, this is not just in international organizations. It's, 
it's a problem among policymakers in nations around the world. You know, there's a sort of implied bargain that if the policymaker doesn't offend the, the Chinese communist authorities, that maybe after retirement they will find that there are business opportunities for them in China or there will be uh, associations that they can be um, put into. You know, Anne-Marie Brady, a professor in New Zealand, has tracked that even among think tankers, those who don't criticize uh, the activities of the Chinese regime can be benefiting as much as $150,000 a year in various associations with PR with the PRC. So, you know, we see it through the government, through proxies, you know, businesses that have a lot of stake in, in their relations with Chinese communist business networks who who act in this regard to try and suppress um, debate that's negative to China's interests in all sorts of aspects. And in general, I think China would like to debase the authority of multilateral institutions like the UN and the WTO, the World Trade Organization, because they feel that, that they're being constrained from from achieving their ambitions through these organizations. In other words, the UN keeps demanding universal standards of human rights, and the WTO expects free and fair trade, and China you know, clearly doesn't want to do either if they can do better by, by um, engaging in you know, pressuring Canada through economic means like non-tariff barriers on our canola seeds, and, uh, and on the other hand, violating international norms of governance by arbitrarily arresting Canadians and holding them to achieve uh, other, other purposes in Canada, specifically in this case, what are what are China's what are China's ambitions? Is the is the World Health Organization and others aware of what their uh, ambitions are? I think that you know uh, people when they when they're receiving benefits from uh, a state are inclined to justify it to themselves that they're not doing anything uh, the matter. But, you know, the Chinese government uh, has made it clear that they want to redress the humiliations inflicted on China by Western imperialism and the Japanese from 1840 on and establish what they call the community of the, of the destiny of mankind, which is to restructure the global order in a way that will put China at the center. And then they have their Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative, which is similarly designed to restructure the global economy uh, to make China the center and the rest of us dependent on feeding that economy. So, you know, that's supposed to happen by 2050. I, I'll be 95 that year, and I'm not convinced that I'll live to see it. But in any event, that's the plan, and it's something that Chinese people feel very strongly about, that China should be the dominant civilization on the planet, and they, they engage in policies to achieve that goal. And, you know, installing Huawei telecommunications into 5G networks throughout the world is also a way for them to gain the leverage and information they need to further this unbelievable ambition. So, in other words, they've paid us off so they get in. Yeah, I think that would be fair to say. And, you know, but Canadians are, are, are getting the point. And the yeah. recent Angus Reid poll shows that um, 85% of us feel that China's been dishonest with regard to its reporting on the um, on the uh, COVID-19, despite what uh, Minister Haju said that you know that there was no indication that the data out of China was falsified in any way, most Canadians apparently don't believe in that. 
um, 11% of us feel that we should um, not be, uh, uh, that, that, that only 11% of us feel we should be focusing our trade efforts on China down from 40% in 2015, and 76% feel that Canada should prioritize human rights and the rule of law over economic opportunity. And with regard to Huawei, um, you know, uh, four out of five Canadians want Huawei banned. So, you know, it's clear that Canadians have got China's number. The question is, can we get our government to adjust our relatively um, appeasing policies towards China to bring them into line with what Canadians expect and and allay those concerns, I think quite legitimate concerns, about um, whether we can get a fair deal out of China in trade or or diplomacy. As we've talked uh, many times, uh, Charles, on this show, uh, many businesses, governments, whatever, allowed China in for the longest time, the golden goose, hoping that they would conform uh, to democracy. Hong Kong was a great example of that. Uh, and what has obviously turned out is the opposite of that. They're still trying for world, world dominance, which to me is odd that people are getting upset. And again, I'm not, I'm not promoting Trump in any way here, but you know, upset about him saying make America great again, but at least he's not searching for world dominance here. Does this discussion seem to be changing now? You alluded that it that it is. Is it? I think that I think that it's becoming a political issue and, you know, we see that, that the opposition party is certainly making quite a big thing out of a reset with China relations statements from Andrew Scheer and uh, and the two leading uh, conservative contenders. Um, you know, I, I think that the, that the Liberal government really has to rethink what they're doing with China, and they've got to recognize that the kind of pressure that they're getting from those major corporate interests that have uh, a lot of stake in China, um, you know, have to be uh, resisted in favor of acting in a way which preserves Canadian security and uh, our prosperity and the international rules-based order which is very important for a, a lesser power like Canada to ensure that our interests are protected in global trade and diplomacy. So I'm I'm feeling that, you know, things, particularly with the COVID-19 having sort of flipped the balance and raised awareness of the nature of the Chinese regime, that we're going to see some better policy. And, you know, there is a, a, a House of Commons special committee on Canada-China relations and I expect that that will be making a number of recommendations to the government on how we can do our engagement with China better. And I think it's quite possible that the government will, in fact, follow up on that and that we'll be able to turn things around in a way that helps us to to stave off the, the influence of China on Canada through its economic leverage. Uh, how do we make sure this discussion stays in 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 uh, in fact, and by that I mean democracy versus communism, as opposed to it turning to a discussion about racism? Because you can see China that as soon as, especially when Donald Trump says something, then automatically, as soon as you try to hold China to account, people are going to start screaming racism. How do we avoid that? How do we make sure we're talking about the Communist Party of China here and not racism? Absolutely. I think that is very, very critical. You know, Amnesty International issued a report about Chinese state harassment of persons of Chinese origin in Canada, uh, which the Chinese government denies through their United Front Work Department. You know, they don't, they, they really try and suppress voices of democracy and, and voices supporting the human rights of 
minorities like the Uyghurs and the Tibetans. And on the other hand, you know, we've got this idea that of of uh, C- Canadians of Chinese origin being subject to racist attacks over the COVID-19. You know, and clearly there is no connection to the Chinese Communist Party's false reporting on the spread of the coronavirus, which, you know, is claimed 300,000 lives globally, and anything to do with um, persons of Chinese origin in Canada. So, you know, I think it really should be a government priority that any uh, persecution of any Canadians in Canada should be met with the full force of the Chinese law, whether it's done by Canadian racist idiots or whether it's done by agents of intimidation and coercion of the Chinese regime. We should protect our Chinese Canadians and, you know, should be celebrating the enormous contribution to Canada's good and just society that that persons of Chinese origin have made to our country. And so I I, I really do, I really couldn't agree with you more. If this thing turns into, um, you know, a a race-based cleavage in our society, which I think is something the Chinese embassy would, would want because they want Canadians of Chinese origin to to have loyalty to China and not to Canada, that we really have to, to count, clamp down hard and make sure that, that that kind of outcome is not going to be a consequence of any change in our policy towards China in the future. And are you is this are you specifically talking about racism geared between Chinese nationals and Chinese Canadians? Because that is apparently quite a conflict as well. Yeah, I think that you do get this this idea that, you know, the expectation is that anyone who is ethnically Chinese should be supporting all of the policies of the Chinese Communist Party uncritically and serving the Chinese state, maybe through various forms of espionage. You know, that is clearly wrong. You know, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. And if the Chinese state is intimidating those people, we should be, you know, declaring the diplomats who are doing that persona non grata and getting them out of here and any agents of the Chinese state who come to Canada for purposes of coercion and intimidation should be uh, you know dealt with very harshly so that's the one side and then of course there's the other side of you know the right-wing fascist element that would use any excuse to to foment hatred between races and that's similarly completely unacceptable in our society and should be challenged you know by the full extent of the law and i don't think the government is doing enough to um, to address either of those aspects has our view of communism changed over the years i mean obviously post world war 2 uh, there was a different thought have we become uh, have have we stopped becoming suspicious of communism well i think that certainly there was a time you know if you in the early in the 60s and the 70s um, including um, prime minister pierre elliott trudeau that there was some admiration for the chinese regime's revolution based on the idea that it was bringing justice and and economic uh, um, fairness to an impoverished country um, we rapidly realized that we were being deceived about that and the chinese themselves repudiated those extreme revolutionary policies but uh, certainly the chinese government wants to give the impression that they are a government like any other and that their state companies and state champions like huawei are just companies like companies that that exist in canada and the united states whereas really their system is a highly integrated system 
where all of the actors are coordinated in furthering the interests of the Chinese regime, whether they're um, you know, economic actors or political actors. And that's why uh, every time there's a, a, a small um, concern on the part of the Chinese government, such as the Australian um, proposal that there should be a, an independent investigation of China's relationship with the WHO and, and the origins of the coronavirus, that, that the Chinese start to threaten things economically. And what they've threatened to Australia is to stop Chinese imports of, of Australian wine, Australian meat and stop yeah. uh, tourists from China going to Australia and stop students from China going to Australia. You know, all of a sudden, uh, a political dispute turns into an economic dispute, and the Chinese state has the ability to do that, to, to, to stop those imports on uh, completely arbitrary grounds to further their economic goals. So we could start to see a lot more of that um, with regard to Canada, retaliation if we start to take a harder line against China's uh, violations of of normal practices of diplomacy and trade. And I think that we have to make a political choice that we're simply not going to be subject to bullying and blackmail uh, by, a, by a large regime that has a non-democratic agenda for Canada and seek markets elsewhere for our products if the Chinese insist on, on blocking us out of retaliation for not going along with what they want. Many have painted this discussion as China versus America, China versus Donald Trump. Isn't this really communism versus democracy? Isn't this a lot more of a global issue? Yes, I quite agree. I think it's highly regrettable that Mr. Trump decided to go after the Chinese mano a mano, one might say, you know, just the United States yeah. against China's violations of, of uh, the trade rules and, you know, its restriction of, of fair market access instead of doing it through a coalition of, of um, Western democracies that could challenge China collectively. So we've been sort of left on the outside, and you know, Trump comes up with a deal where China agrees to import U.S. agricultural commodities like soybeans, um, and so they work it out fine. They, China will compensate the United States by importing a huge quantity of soybeans. But what that means is that Canada's market for soybeans disappears because yeah. China's bringing in the American product instead of ours. So from that point of view, Trump's strategy has, is unfortunate for us. But that, as you say, doesn't um, uh, dispute the larger principle that we simply can no longer continue to accept China's increasing encroachments on the institutions that govern trade and diplomacy and and at some point we have to stand up and say we just won't we just won't go along with this any further and unless you're willing to play by the established rules both to the letter and the spirit of them like everybody else then we're going to have to um sanction you ourselves or or uh, exclude ourselves from your market and seek markets elsewhere fortunately in the case of canada because most of our exports to China are agricultural commodities, you know, that's a global market. And if we, if China sources elsewhere, that'll open up opportunities for us. But, you know, obviously that's not a desirable thing. But, you know, let's bear in mind that this whole idea that we could be promoting Canadian prosperity by compromising our principles with regard to China has not panned out. You know, at our peak, we had 4.7% of our external trade to China. Mm. Now with the bar on the, on the soybeans, we're down to closer to 4%. That compares with 78% to the United States. So 
so the idea that the Chinese economy is very critical to Canada's future prosperity is just not borne out by the stats because mm. the Chinese have not fulfilled their promise to let us in. Charles Burton has been with us, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, is always a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Uh, you too. Thanks again for having me on. Andrew Cadell is with us with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, publishing a paper today uh, that calls for a reorganization and interna- uh, reorganization of organizations such as the UN and the World Health Organization. Andrew Cadell is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I certainly am. Good afternoon, Scott. I hope uh, things are going well for you at home. So will we get to the bottom of what happened here between the World Health Organization and China and the rest of the world, or is this all going to get lost in the sauce of politics? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think, first of all, we don't know when an investigation is going to take place because the resolution doesn't say exactly when it's to take place. And given that the WHO is pretty well seized with just dealing on a day-to-day basis with the coronavirus, it's... Uh, it's, it's, it would be pretty complicated to try to do an investigation at the same time. That said, uh, I don't think we can wait you know, a year or two before there's a proper inve- investigation into what happened. And as for uh, as long as Dr. Tedros is there, I don't think anybody's going to want to uh, upset the apple cart and show that he might have been complicit with China uh, at the time of the, uh, when, the, when the information finally leaked out from China about, the, uh, about COVID-19. So where are we with the facts here? Is it obvious that information was delayed? We're just not sure of the extent or the process of all of this. What do we know? What do we know? What don't we know? Well, you know, if you look at the timeline, the WHO was informed around the end of um, December into uh, January. But we're looking at the possibility that COVID actually emerged from the market in uh, Wuhan in November. And as we know, there were doctors that were um, either either jailed or told to shut up in China that recognized that this might be uh, a new kind of a virus. And um, But it's interesting because you look at what happened in New Zealand and Taiwan and uh, and even in, in, in Singapore, the instant that it was known, they ran, they went into a, a you know, high-end operation where they closed their borders, they, they did uh, contract tracing, they did all of the things that are required immediately because, well, especially in Taiwan and, and certainly in New Zealand, because they knew China, they knew well enough from previous experiences that if this was coming out now or at that time, that they had to really uh, act swiftly and, and force, uh, forcefully. That was our mistake in North America, I think, was that we didn't act as forcefully as we could have. On the other hand, you know, when there's an, a month and a half delay in knowing that, that something that this, was this dangerous was, uh, was propagating and was, was, was going, uh, was traveling, um, you know, there, there should have been at least some better forewarning. What, why would the World Health Organization not have been more forthright? Why would they have allowed themselves to be influenced uh, by China, what's in it for them? Well, first of all, first of all, the Chinese have offered two billion dollars uh, to to pay for uh, research, which will more than uh, uh, you know, will more than compensate for the amount the Americans have cut back, the four hundred million that they contribute. But I think it also comes down to the, the fact that like the previous uh, director general of the WHO, Margaret Chan, who is a Canadian citizen. 
um, has is, is is now sort of in the pocket of the of the Chinese government has written uh, uh, papers lauding uh, Xi Jinping, the uh, uh, the head of the Communist Party of China, and and and, and their their head of state, and has essentially um, and and that she was there for ten years, and I think that influence would probably have led to people from China, from the Chinese government, being put in place in the WHO, who would have had an influence then going forward. And, of course, Dr. Tedros was supported in his campaign uh, over a British doctor. And Dr. Tedros is actually not a medical doctor, but he was supported over a British doctor in his campaign by China. And so he owes his election to China. Has the rest of the world become too dependent on China? How will that change moving forward? Well, I've written a paper for the Canadian Governmental Affairs Institute, which talks about how you know what we have to do internationally and uh, and, and domestically, which is coming up today. And um, I, I I say that we really have to look at ways of trying to uh, curtail China's activities, because you know right now they're not doing too badly financially. And they could use the the sort of the COVID dividend to uh, to 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 take over a lot of the projects that are going uh, bankrupt in African states and other places in the world where they have loaned money and the states don't have the means to be able to repay. And that would be very dangerous. In addition to which, they're going to seek out buying out uh, companies like the Canadian gold mining company that has now been, uh, but our our former head of CSIS, Richard Fadden has said that, that we shouldn't allow it to go forward <clears throat> because they're taking, they're sort of buying things on the cheap because they're, they're, their value is diminished in, in the wake of COVID. So uh, how, you know, we have uh, Donald Trump who's looking towards a, a re-election. How, and are you, how concerned are you that the, the facts and what and the investigation that needs to be done here will be challenged and this is painted to be a racial issue or an issue that, that's, you know, China versus the United States as opposed to the rest of the world? Well, I think you always have to make a distinction, and China experts always say this. Don't, you should distinguish between China and the Communist Party of China. The Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, yeah. is the power that runs China and has uh, for the last, what, uh, 60, 70 years. But that doesn't really represent the people of China. And I think that the, 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 the distinction should be made. And as we know, Xi Jinping has, has, has now basically elected himself as, as leader for life. And I think within China, there's there's going to be a lot of pushback uh, against that uh, from within within the the country, and just all, all possibly within the, the Communist Party itself and the and the ruling apparatus. I mean, I'm hoping that's going to be the case. So uh, this, go ahead. Yeah. So I I think we, you know we can hope that there will be some better influence. The problem is we've been waiting for this for years, and that's why we admitted China into the WTO, why we encouraged a greater reaching out to China, why we encouraged a greater you know, economic, economic ties, because we thought the more we traded with them, the more they would become democratic. Well, the, the, the opposite has become yeah. the case, and their manipulation of the WHO is a very good, good case in point in that. The article is Post-COVID Canada Faces Challenges at Home and Abroad. Now is the time to act by Andrew Cadell, Global, uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thanks so much for the time and uh, insight on this. We'll certainly chat again. Good luck. Indeed. Stay safe. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.